as we went through the books of Acts and Romans in the near history of our church life together, um, among the, the other themes, the main themes of those books, especially the gospel and its spread, one recurring pattern that we noticed is that the, um, the textbook, the scriptures that the early church had was the Old Testament. And uh, repeatedly we're told about uh, Paul, for example, per persuading people that from the scriptures, persuading people from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And throughout the book of Romans, uh, Paul is careful to point out that the gospel that he is elaborating on in the book of Romans isn't something that j had just recently dropped out of heaven, but uh, it, it, the, um, the law and the prophets bore witness to it. And um, the reason that they acted that way and said those things is because they were following in the footstep, footsteps of Jesus. Jesus is the one who said to a group of Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 5, you, you, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. The Old Testament scriptures, Jesus said, testify of him. And then even more directly regarding uh, the book of Psalms, Jesus said uh, in Luke 24 and verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus says that all of the Old Testament scriptures, including the book of Psalms, have things to say prophetically, predictively, about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that must be fulfilled. And so that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. I have no idea how long, uh, but we're going to spend some time looking through the book of Psalms to see Christ in the Psalms. And if that's what we're going to do, then where, where should we start? Where do you start a study like that? Well, where we are starting is in Psalm 110 that Brother Jay already read for us. And the reason we're starting in Psalm 110 is because Psalm 110 is the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. The, the New Testament writers either explicitly uh, quote from it or reference it, or make allusions to it some 17 times. And it could be actually more than that. I, I counted 17 times. So Psalm 110 is a very important psalm to understand what Jesus came into the world in order to accomplish. It uh, provides prophetically, this profile of Christ some thousand years before Christ was ever born. And it is 
rich. There is so much meat in this psalm. I trust that God will feed us well today uh, from his word as we look through Psalm 110. So the theme is um, the prophetic profile of Christ in Psalm 110. And uh, so we're going to notice what the psalm tells us about Jesus. And the first thing it tells us about Jesus is that he is God. He is God. Notice the first part of verse 1. It is a psalm of David, and it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In your Bibles, the first occurrence of the word Lord there in verse 1 should be in all caps. Is that correct? And then the second occurrence of the word Lord is just a normal capitalized capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, right? That, that's because um, in the Old Testament, in our English Bibles, when we have the word Lord like that in all uh, caps, that's a signal to us that that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, uh, Englishized Jehovah. Um, that means simply I am. It points to God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, his independence, his, his aseity, as the theologians like to describe it. So this is Jehovah speaking. And David says, Jehovah says to, and then the next word that he uses here is Adonai. And it's very personal. It's my Adonai, which literally translated means my Lord, my master, and it can be translated my God. Now, Adonai is used a lot in the Old Testament, and most of the time it's actually not used with reference to God. Usually it's used with reference to an, an earthly ruler. But while that's true, clearly Adonai here, uh, my Adonai, my Lord, my Master, my God, uh, is meant to be used with reference to God because if you think about it, no earthly king fits the description of Psalm 110. No earthly king is seated at God's right hand or an eternal priest, or able to judge the nations. Those are things that are true about Jehovah, who is also our Lord, our Master, and our God. And that's not just me putting my Christian construction onto Psalm 110, although I think it, it, it uh, is true, it's legit. But this is how Jesus interpreted Psalm 110. Look in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. One aspect of following Christ that I think a lot of modern Christians lose sight of is that as, as Christians, we're followers of Christ, as Christians, we must 
have the same opinion of the scriptures as Jesus. How can, seriously, how can you follow Christ? How can you be uh, a, a Christian, a follower and learner from Christ, and believe something about the Bible, including the Old Testament, that's contradictory to what Jesus believed? That's, that's a challenge to us. So the reason I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to establish that Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus is because Jesus said it did. And here's where. Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, correctly, the son of David. And they were correct. God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13 promised uh, David this heir who would be this ruler among rulers, uh, this ruler par excellence. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. The Messiah would be the son of David. And so they're correct to say the son of David. But that wasn't the agenda of Jesus to stop there. Notice verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and now he quotes from Psalm 110, words that we've just seen, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice, by the way, that uh, Jesus affirms that David wrote Psalm 110, and that when David wrote Psalm 110, he was, he was in the spirit, it was given by inspiration of God. It was God-breathed. David was an inspired writer when he wrote Psalm 110. But what Jesus is saying here through this, these challenging questions is not to try to say the Messiah is not the son of David. But what he's trying to get them to see is that the Messiah is more than the son of David. He's actually great David's greater son. In fact, he is David's Lord. He's God. The Messiah would be the God-man. In verse 45, Jesus says, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What father ever calls his son Lord? The only way that that makes sense is if this son of David is himself God. And you know what? This is what came crashing down on the apostle Thomas. When the resurrected Jesus stood before him and Thomas had to put his hands on Jesus' wounds to be convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. 
And so as Thomas was in the presence of the resurrected God-man, he said, my Lord and my God. And that's almost an exact translation of Psalm 110. When David, when Yahweh, when David says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, it's really the language from Thomas, my Lord and my God. Jesus is God. True, it wasn't as clearly revealed in the Old Testament as it is in the New, but it's there. And it is made more clear in the New Testament. And so Jesus springs onto the scene and his disciples who lived with him and saw him and heard him were able to testify. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, and that's the first part of his prophetic profile. He's God. But then David, by the Spirit, goes on to say that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Notice the second half of verse 1, back in Psalm 110, and verse 2. So the Lord says to my Lord, and then here's what he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 2 he says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And all of this is kingly language. It's royal language. There's a throne and remember what God said in Isaiah chapter 66? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That's why, by the way, no merely earthly king can sit at God's right hand. Only the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is king of kings and lord of lords, only Jesus can sit at God's right hand. But where's Jesus sitting? It's not a lounge chair. It's not a stool itself. Jesus is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. So there's a throne in verse 2. There's a scepter and he's ruling kingly language. Jesus, who is God, is also king. And this idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, is uh, applied to Jesus. This language from Psalm 110 is applied to Jesus at least 11 times in the New Testament. Just this specific language. And I'm going to show you just a couple of them. I'm not going to look at all 11, but we're going to look at a couple here in the book of Hebrews. So look in Hebrews chapter 1. And verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 
So Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but has in these last, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. There was this step-by-step progression of God's revealing his will to his Old Testament people by the prophets. But now there's been this grand finale, this crescendo of God's self-revelation to his people, and it's by his son. His, His son, who is the word of God, is God's last word, as it were. What, what, can, what else can God say besides his son? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. But now notice what the author of the book of Hebrews says. End of verse 3. After making purification for sins, so Jesus is not only a king, he's a priest. Psalm 110 says that. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where did we read that? That's lifted right out of Psalm 110. And so here the writer of the book of Hebrews is applying this prophetic profile of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right, the right hand of God. He's applying that to Jesus, who is the Son of God. And then flip later on to, in chapter 1 to verse 13. Um, what the writer of the book of Hebrews begins to do at this point is to make this contrast between figures from the Old Testament that the, uh, his readers would have been familiar with and Jesus. And he begins with this contrast with, with angels. And he's trying to point out how uniquely, even infinitely superior, the Son is even to angels. Uh, and so, notice in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said? And then here's a quote from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, that um, saying from God the Father applies to the Son who is infinitely more majestic and glorious and superior than even the angels. So Jesus is not an angel, in spite of what the Jehovah's Witnesses want you to believe. They, did you know that? The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is Gabriel. He's, he's an exalted angel. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says, well, God never said this to any angel, but he does say it to his son, who's also the son of David. So two occurrences of um, these words from Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. And here's the point. Jesus is on his throne 
at the right hand of God in heaven, which means he's in fellowship with God. He's, he's God's right-hand man, we might say. He's carrying out the will of God. He's glorifying God. He has the authority of God. He's at the right hand of God in heaven. What's the focus of his reign? What's the focus of his reign? Well, back in Psalm 110, you'll notice in verse, uh, the end of verse 1 and verse 2, David talks about enemies twice. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus sitting at God's right hand has some sort of focus dealing with subduing his enemies. Well, let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean, uh, till I make your enemies your, your footstool? It's, it's basically um, poetic language to illustrate or to, uh, to, to convey the idea that they're, they're conquered or they're subdued. They're, they're not destroyed. They're not annihilated. But they're conquered or subdued. They're, they're brought into subjection. They're brought into this, this place of even relationship with and, and presence with the conquering king. That's the idea of that language until I make your enemies your, your footstool. Well, how does God subdue Christ's enemies? If Jesus says, this is talking about me, and the New Testament writers over and over and over again are saying, this is that, that is this, then it's talking about Jesus subduing his enemies. How does Jesus subdue his enemies? Let's look in Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians 1, notice verses 13 and 14. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13, God, he, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Once again, that is kingly, royal language. We're talking about kingdoms. And what God has done in terms of subduing Christ's enemies is this transference of kingdoms. One way to think about Christ's enemies being subdued or conquered is God plucks them out of the domain of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then look over in same chapter, verses 21 and 22. Here's some more uh, detail 
about what we were like when we were in the domain of darkness before God transferred us into Christ's kingdom. Verse 21. And you once were alienated. We were separated from God. In fact, uh, Paul in Romans 5 and verse 10 calls us enemies. Before we were saved, we were God's enemies. We were alienated and hostile in mind. Our, our inward being, including our thoughts and our affections, our goals, were against God, at war with God. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what our situation was like when we were in the domain of darkness. But God didn't leave us that way. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now we're talking about Jesus, God the Son. In order to present you holy and blameless and, a, and above reproach before him. This is how God subdues Christ's enemies. He changes their kingdoms and he changes them from the inside out. And so every one of us, brothers and sisters, every one of us is a natural enemy of God. We're a natural enemy of Christ. If God would have left us to ourselves, there would have been that little voice inside of our hearts saying, we will not have that man rule over us. I am my own man. I'm my own woman. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to do what I want, when I want, to whomever I want. And woe to you or anyone else if you get in my way. That's the spirit of the natural man. In, in some way, shape, or form. But, but here we are. We're, we're in church. We're here not because anybody made us come here. It's because even though we've never seen the Lord Jesus, we love him. We want to learn about him. We want to worship him. We want to sing his praises. We want to be more like him. We want to obey him. Amen. What happened? God has made us, Christ's enemies, into his footstool. God has subdued us. God has conquered us. And think about this enemy. Look in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 15. Colossians 2 and verse 15. So I'm going to fill in the pronoun, personal pronouns here. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He means the prince of the power of the air. He means the rulers and authorities in, in high places. The, the devil and his angels. God disarmed those rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That in the context, the him is Christ. 
So that's an amazing thing because the devil and his angels wanted Christ dead from the moment Jesus was born. Do you remember Herod trying to wipe out all of the infants in and around Bethlehem? Do you remember Satan entering Judas in John chapter 13? Satan wanted Jesus dead. Jesus died on the cross. And there may have been a microsecond of time when Satan thought, aha, I did it. Until he realized, oh no, I've just fallen into my own trap. The worst evil ever concocted and executed in world history with no exceptions and nothing even close, the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished the greatest good. The death of Jesus accomplished the salvation of all of God's people. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our trespasses, like Paul says in verse 13, Satan, who is actually instrumental in putting Jesus on the cross, was put to open shame. This happens because God is sovereign and majestic and mighty and in control and Jesus is on his throne and nobody can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even Satan himself ends up just being this wild, nasty, loud, obnoxious beast on a leash, doing what God ultimately intends for him to do. This is quite an enemy, and even that enemy is brought to Christ's footstool. There's no exceptions. Jesus is king. Amen. And you'll notice back in Psalm 110, uh, the scepter, and the scepter is the symbol of the king's authority. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The scepter is the king's, uh, the symbol of the king's authority. Where how does Jesus wield his authority? How does Jesus wield his scepter? Listen to his own words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You recognize that. That's the Great Commission. But it's also the verse before, verse 18. The great commission can happen because of the authority given to Jesus in verse 18. The, the spread of the gospel around the world and down through the ages can happen because King Jesus is on his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high, wielding his mighty scepter, the word of God, the gospel. 
That's how Jesus is subduing his enemies. Then think of Christ's promise to the early church. And, and once again, think of those words in verse uh, 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So it started in Israel. And that's exactly what happened throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Christ's promise to the early church was this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Zion, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And ultimately, Corona, California, which is where I got saved, and Ridgecrest, California, and wherever else you heard the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if you're saved, Jesus wielded his mighty scepter, sent the gospel to you, and he sent the Holy Spirit into your heart at the same time to open your eyes and unstop your deaf ears and replace your hard heart with a heart of flesh. And you believed, and you willingly turned to Jesus, and you were subdued. You were conquered. And what's, what's the result? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, let all the house of Israel, Peter preached to this uh, crowd of Jews, this international crowd on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, just like he promised in Psalm 110. He is king. Thirdly, he has an army of volunteers he has an army of volunteers. Notice the first part of verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Kings have armies. In those days, soldiers were often conscripted. Soldiers were often slaves. But not so King Jesus. King Jesus has a mighty army for sure, populated by soldiers who serve him willingly. He has an army of volunteers. And this is a reminder, by the way, that God's power, when we talk about God's power uh, subduing us and God drawing us to Christ, which is what Jesus himself says, God's power doesn't force us to act against our will. But God's power transforms us from the inside out, enabling us to willingly serve him. Without the power of God, we're slaves of sin and of Satan. With the power of God or as a result of the power of God, then we're volunteers. We offer ourselves freely. We, we come to Jesus it's, it's our faith, it's the gift of God, but we're the ones who believe. We're the ones who repent. Repentance is also a gift from God, see Acts chapter 11, but we're the ones who do it. God doesn't do it for us. We offer ourselves freely. And 
You get a hint of this in Jesus' words from John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. It's the, the vine and the branch passage. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And, and again, think about that. Without conversion, we're enemies of God, alienated from God because of our wicked deeds. But here, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Those commandments which used to irritate us and inspire rebellion on our part, now we love. And we love the commander. You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When our wills are renewed, when we're subdued, when we're conquered by the mighty grace of God, it's our joy to obey Christ. It's not a burden. And by the way, in terms of this army of volunteers, we're, we're not alone. We're, we're all soldiers in the Lord's army. And this is the theme of that hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, that begins, Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. And that has nothing to do with a military conquest of the Middle East, like what happened during the, the Crusades, by the way, uh, because Paul said that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And with these weapons, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the result is, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The fourth aspect of this prophetic profile of Christ is that he is holy and vigorous. He is holy and vigorous. So notice the end of verse 3. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And commentators have different opinions about whether or not this is speaking directly about the volunteers or if it's speaking about the sun. It actually works both, both ways because either way, Jesus is the source. So in, in terms of these holy garments, Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 26, as a holy Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And then Peter says that as believers, we are responsible for holiness. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So whether... 
these uh, holy garments belong to the people or to the king, the result is the same. The source of our holiness is Jesus. Jesus is holy and he's also vigorous. He's filled with life and strength and power. And we get that from this poetic language from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, Jesus has no need for the fountain of youth. He will always retain his youthful vigor and strength as king. He will never grow old and weak. If you, if you watch me or any of us, over enough time, we obviously grow tired, and weary, and weak. And there comes a point when we may have good intentions, but we can't do what we say we're going to do or we want to do. We're just too weak. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the powerful, almighty Savior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you think about that, if Jesus was mighty to save the likes of Saul of Tarsus, if Jesus was mighty to save fill in the blank, if Jesus was mighty to save you when he did save you, and you realize that that took omnipotence to break through your stubborn heart, then rest assured that that mighty power is still there. Jesus will never grow weary or weak. He's vigorous and he'll always be. Then, in the fifth place, he's, he's a priest. Notice verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You just do a simple Bible search on the name Melchizedek. Shows up three times in the Old Testament. Uh, twice in Genesis chapter 14 where this actual guy appears on the scene. And then here in Psalm 110, three times in the Old Testament. And then um, he shows up a bunch of times, eight times in the book of Hebrews alone. And we're going to look there in a minute. So here's this figure, Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18, we read that uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, and by the way, Salem would go on to be known as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So Melchizedek, king of Salem or Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine when, when Abraham and his entourage came. And then the parenthetical statement at the end of verse 18 there in Genesis chapter 14, he was priest of God most high. King of Salem, priest of God most high. How many priests in the Old Testament priesthood the, the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, how many of them 
were also king. What do you think? That's right. None. Zero. And it's not because there were no takers. It's because those offices were separated by God. No earthly king was allowed to be a priest. No earthly priest was allowed to be king. They were, they were separate offices. And yet here's this strange character, Melchizedek, who's both king and priest, and he even receives tithes from Abraham. And he seems to appear out of nowhere, and then he disappears with, with no description of where he went or any uh, descendants that, that he left. And God says about the Lord, about Jesus, that he is a priest forever after the order of Mel Melchizedek. Well, it turns out that the book of Hebrews talks about this reality a lot. We're, we are running out of time, so I'm going to just fly through. Okay, ready? Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Notice in verse 6. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the, after the order of Melchizedek. By the way, he connects that with the son of Psalm 2 and verse 5. You are my son. Today I, I have begotten you. And then notice in chapter 7 and verse 1, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. He's without father or mother or genealogy. Not literally, that's not what he means. But he means in terms of the description of the scriptures. He springs onto the scene from nowhere and then seems to disappear from nowhere. F figuratively, he's without mother or genealogy. And neither beginning of days nor end of life it's figurative to resemble the Son of God who continues a priest forever in fulfillment of the promise from Psalm 110. Um, chapter 7 and verse 25. So what? Consequently, because Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, <clears throat> Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the so what. Jesus didn't offer up the sacrifices that Melchizedek did, whatever they were. Jesus didn't offer up the blood of goats and heifers and various animals like the Levitical priests did in the Old Testament. He offered up his own blood, chapter 9. He offered up himself as the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sins. He was punished in our place. He poured out his lifeblood. Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus fulfilled that. He's the ultimate high priest 
offering up himself. <coughs> Again, in fulfillment of Psalm 110, he is a priest. He's the ultimate high priest. And then six, he's a victorious warrior. Back in Hebrews, I'm sorry, back in Psalm 110, just as well be Hebrews. Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And by the way, this is kind of a warning. Here's, here's this gracious king who's a priest who subdues his enemies, whose, whose army is filled with the ranks of volunteers. He's, he's gentle. He's merciful. But his mercy isn't going to last forever for everybody. The, the day of opportunity will come to an end and then the wrath of God will come through this very same king. Uh, and I'll have you turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 19. We're not going to read everything that's in my notes, but I just want to point this out to you. So, uh, Revelation chapter 19. And in, on your own, read verses 11 through 21 of Revelation 19. We're just going to give it a start. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him <clears throat> on white horses. <coughs> Excuse me. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that picture continues through verse 21. And as you read that passage, you'll see that a lot of the imagery uh, in Psalm 110 is actually present there. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is a victorious warrior. And then finally, he's a judge. He's a judge. Back in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And he will execute judgment on the day of, uh, among the nations. Jesus is judge. And this reality about Jesus is repeated quite often in the New Testament. I counted 19 times. Maybe you can count more. 
But the New Testament refers to Jesus as the ultimate judge. And here's one such passage. Paul, at the Areopagus, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of arrogant, uh, ignorance, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And this is why the early church uh, confessed their faith in the Apostles' Creed by saying, the third day Jesus rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. What an amazing profile. Isn't that amazing? Paul, uh, David, excuse me, same, same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul, inspired David. But here's David writing a thousand years before Jesus was born about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the takeaway is, there's two main takeaways. Basically, when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not making an irrational decision. There is substance <coughs> behind Jesus. He is the rock Here's the whole Bible testifying to his person and work. It's, it's a reasonable thing. It's a rational thing to take Jesus at his own words and come to him. And the last takeaway <coughs> is you don't have all the time of eternity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's gonna come an end to this open door. Now is the time to come to Jesus when he's offered to you as this gracious Savior King. Not, not when you'll face him as your judge. Then it's too late. While it is called today, 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 Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved.